Welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. I'm Alina Jenkins, your host for the series. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Tarusha Naidu, a clinical psychologist and head of unit at King Dinazulu Hospital Complex and a lecturer in the Department of Behavioural Medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. Dr. Naidu is currently conducting research projects on global north-south engagement in medical education research and teaching, as well as in the health humanities aspects of MDRTB and HIV. In our interview for this podcast series, she told me more about her work, which led her to be recommended for the fellowship. I'd started to scratch around in an area where I I started to realize both as a researcher and as a medical educator that there was quite a discrepancy between how medical education is taught in the global south and, and the global north. And I had gone to Toronto and started working with people there and Brian Hodges uh, came across my work. I had just by chance also done some work in the area of compassion, which is his interest area. But mostly I was interested in how these concepts, even something uh, that we think is as universal as compassion, are actually conceptualized differently in the global south and north and south, how they're played out, how they're conceptualized. And, and I think that discrepancy between the global north and south in terms of medical education and research is what I highlighted when I, did, when I wrote the motivation for the prize. What led you to go down that path? Because it sounds like it's quite a step away from your normal clinical psychology practice. Well, it came upon me quite insidiously because um, in South Africa, we learn and are taught medicine and clinical practice very much from a Western perspective. And it's probably not as evident in medicine as it is in psychology, because we're literally taught about the mind. And When I first started practicing as a psychologist, I worked in the military just post-94 when non-statutory forces, meaning people that had fought against the apartheid government, were being integrated into the the National Defense Force. And I started working with these people around the trauma that they'd experienced as being classified as terrorists against their own government, the government of the country, and realized the kind of psychology that I was taught was a Western psychology that judged these people as militants, as renegades, as non-people. And I started having to work on the ground. Years later, I discovered the same thing was happening in medicine and the same thing was happening with my colleagues Two of my colleagues and I wrote a paper about how the psychology that we learnt was not the psychology that we were doing. And realizing also the kind of people that were coming to our hospitals were not getting the kind of treatment and the kind of hearing that was relevant, relevant to their lives. And this is why I started looking at, well, why is this the case? And started to slowly realize that by myself, and many people recognize it intuitively, that we're not taught the kind of health practice that is relevant to our context. In fact, it's so harsh that we're taught to judge ourselves and our patients very negatively. I think it's emerging in the North now when you see it around COVID, where groups of 
migrants and uh, non-mainstream people are having to be labeled because they need to be understood within a health system that is constructed on northern terms and they become othered. Um, I know that's a long answer, but that's what prompted me. My work as a clinician prompted me to start thinking about it in this way. I imagine that this is a problem that isn't just relevant to medical research or even the medical community, but across economics and politics. So to start looking into this, do you have to come out of the medical world and look elsewhere, literature or culture, for example? Absolutely, definitely. In fact, I would say it was coming from outside the medical world that made me see what was going on inside. In South Africa, we have a very active psychology academic community. And for years, I'd been attending the National Psychology Meeting of Psychologists, the conference of the National Psychology Association. And they'd started talking about decoloniality in psychology for many years. When I first got there, I was, well, what's this about? It's coming from my clinic and what, what is decoloniality? It was about six or seven years ago. And then they, uh, the Roads Must Fall movement started in South Africa and decoloniality became really mainstream in South Africa. Statutes fell and and our colleagues were writing. And I realized going back into medical education, which is where I teach in my my paid everyday life, that it had not even touched medical education, that we were taking for granted that medical education was a science and a pure science above um, that. So your question asked whether I have to go outside to answer what was going on inside. In fact, because I had come from outside, I realized this is happening everywhere in this, not necessarily the sciences, but definitely in education, in, in psychology, where I, where I started hearing about it. And it was not happening in medical education in a conscious sense. I had had the opportunity to be a visiting scholar on Duke University's Global Health Humanities Program. And I had gone to the University of Michigan, and it was such a stark contrast, the privileges and the kind of thinking that went on at these two American medical schools who are very wealthy and well-structured and privileged. It was such a stark contrast to me that I started to realize that um, medicine in the North is a highly privileged space and needs to be, dare I say, decolonized. That's a controversial view, isn't it? If you think of trickle-down economics and the idea behind that, does it also apply to science and medicine? There's money and wealth in the global north, and by bringing it to the south, it should help. But are you saying that it doesn't, and perhaps it has a negative impact on the global south? Possibly, not in in the way um, we think of medicine as healing and bringing knowledge and science to an area. But if it's done without cognizance of living conditions and the living environment of, of people, then, then it isn't. And I'll, I'll, I'll use another example. The way I saw that is many, many people from the global north, whether it's European, Western European countries, the United States, the UK, many researchers want to come to South Africa. And because of our AIDS pandemic, uh, many people came to South Africa. So my whole career, both as a researcher and as, a, as an academic, I've seen northerners come in and do research but it's always from their mindset and from their perspective, uh, coming from a place of already knowing and already understanding. And when you're younger and you have less of a voice and you have much more to lose, 
you tend to be silent as a researcher and as a student. I had done my PhD on a Norwegian project. I had worked with Americans. I had worked with uh, some other Europeans and seen how people are in the, in the South tend to become silenced, not necessarily because Northern researchers are silencing them actively, but their voices and their power around economics and ideas and their kind of epistemologies that we are learning are so strong that people are easily silenced. And so that's what I was seeing rather than the science is strong. It's a different kind of science and it's so established that people in the South almost are stifled before they can start to think for themselves. So how do you break that cycle? I've been doing some research and hearing anecdotes about people in Malaysia who perhaps have some fantastic research, but are getting refused publications. And that's important in medical research. You need to publish. So it seems they're falling at the first hurdle. How do you break that cycle? I don't know yet, because that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. But one, one of the first steps that I've, I've taken is to start writing conceptually in the area of medical education. And that is to start giving people in medical education a language and a structure and to draw on from from different epistemologies about how to talk about these things. I think it's too too much to expect for researchers on the ground to beat the path to, to publication on their own because there's important work to be done. And it's up to people who have an interest like me to start creating a a substrate or a foundation for people to be heard. So what I've started doing, and I think on the surface it, it might look, well, why even do this? Because it's, it's quite esoteric when you first hear about it. But to start giving medicine the language or medical education the language to speak. So I draw from the work of, of Walter Mignolo and other decolonial theorists about writing and thinking about how medicine is related to modern thinking, modernity, as he, as he calls it, and educating from both sides. We have the idea that Northerners have had the idea that the South needs to be educated, but we need to educate, for want of a better phrase, upward as well, to educate about how medicine is thought of, that science is not objective science, it's Western science, that economy and the success of an economy is not a capitalist economy that genders are not binary, that race is is a construct. And these are all nicely structured and talked about and set out in other fields. And I want to bring that into medical education and give this complex esoteric language a place in medical education. So I've, I've gone into the very swampy area of having to bring this very elusive stuff that doctors are not or, or medical people are not taught to think about and like into medical medical education and think and, and write about it. I think networking is also very important and finding people who, who want to hear. And I have to say that I've had some very good support, and I want to say allies from, from colleagues at Duke University and and especially you know, the University of Toronto with Brian Hodges, and I'm about to do a couple of a lecture with researchers there and um, starting to speak to them about thinking about their research. So it's bringing the high-level epistemology into medicine, but also networking around it and writing these high-level concepts in, a, in an accessible way for medical educators and researchers. 
We've been having lots of discussion around communication, which is so important in what you do, but often the focus is on the data and the science and the facts. But we have to give equal focus to communication. And that's something that you're very keen on. And I know you teach it as a competency. So I teach across all health sciences, the physiotherapists, OTs, speech therapists, and and medical doctors themselves, both consultants and practitioners and students. And that too is is an area that is different outside of the West and than it is within the West, how people communicate. For instance, a good example is that often in a consultation in South Africa, we'll have a whole family together in the room with the patient, which I'd never thought was unusual until I heard colleagues. And not necessarily, it's not necessarily a family therapy session. It's it's a session about a grandmother or a, or, or a father. And doctors themselves take it for granted, but don't talk about it actively as a I'd say a decolonizing practice. Um, So communication, yes, is important. And I think the way I like to think about it is is taking the lessons I learned from the micro-communication little settings in the clinic with an individual patient and carrying it all the way up to what I call meta-communication or conceptual communication when I want to communicate to people who are entering a new field. So when I speak in a few weeks to, to researchers about about a different aspect of medical education, I will talk about how we have to think differently and use examples from, from our context. I think, I think communication is, for me, vertical and lateral. The challenge with communication when it comes to medical education is assessing competency and the difference between subjectivity and objectivity. And I think communication falls into that. What are the challenges that you found? Subjective and objective communication. Well, it's interesting that you should mention those those two terms because it's, it's complex in the area of that I'm thinking about because the way I see subjectivity as constructed within medicine is the northern subjective norm. So there are much, there's much writing in the field that I talk about as subjective being what we call the zero point perspective, which is it's constructed from the perspective of a northern white male. Um, so turn taking, and if we're thinking linguistically, the way clear communication is constructed is based on a very Western concept. So if you come from outside the West and looking in non-Western contexts or Southern contexts, communication might not look clear. And I think even when I look at competencies around communication, I, I, I assess for competencies in the classroom and in the clinic. But in reality, we have to look at a different kind of communication in the context of the field. So the subjectivity and the objectivity the, the point of subjectivity in the context has to be unpacked here as well. And we have to realize that the objectivity that we've constructed is not a Western male objectivity. I know that's quite a complex thing and I'm still kind of mulling around in it as well. I want to talk now about the fellowship and what it's meant for you and the impact that it's had on your research. And does it bring you hope for the future for your research? So what it's done for me in the first benefit is that it really helped the week that we that we spent together in Stockholm with with the other fellows and with the mentors was so useful f- to me I, and I might be speaking in a coherent way about my research now but it was such a fragmented 
person perspective that I had on it. And that week helped, helped to really consolidate how I thought about where I was going medical education and what my research was about. It's so easy to feel sort of like, like an imposter in your research when you, you're doing all sorts of things that you enjoy, but you're not sure why. And that week helped us build a body of work and oeuvre around how we thought about our work. And I was, I reflected deeply on it during the week and afterwards about how all these aspects of my work come together, the conceptual, the practice as a psychologist. And I realized that there, there, there was a narrative thread. So that was extremely powerful and useful in that week. And then as a medical education researcher from, from South Africa, it's really a, a, a developing area in South Africa. And I work out of the mainstream in the sense that I'm, I am a clinician and a researcher. So I don't have a lot of opportunity to engage with researchers inside South Africa, which is an advantage and a disadvantage because you, you, you don't get drawn along with the mainstream and you have innovation around your ideas. But to, to link with, with other colleagues from around the world, that, that was another benefit. And to see how in a mid, midstream researchers are all very, I wouldn't say unsure, but thinking about where they're going in their research. It was, it was reassuring to know that you didn't have to know and the process was getting to know and becoming. Also realizing that medical education is, is still a very relatively new area. And though the North has funds to structure it and to provide spaces, they're still learning and the opportunity to become part of an emerging community. Also, I think that Karolinska, the Institute, has been very, very progressive in putting this fellowship together. And it's, it's incredible to me to see how it's allowed me alone, and I'm sure other researchers as well, to think about our research in a structured way and move it forward. In terms of how I'm hoping that it will connect me with people in other parts of the world, not necessarily in the North, but other sort of South, global South countries. And, and I have to say, I'm intimidated about the future because I'm, I'm still not sure about how I will write this research up right at the moment. It feels massive to me, but the connections with, with people in other parts of the world make me hopeful. And I think that that's on a global level, that's been most comforting being able to connect and being heard and it resonating with people, even if it seems a bit mysterious still, because I'm not quite explaining it properly, but that it resonates and it's taken seriously and that it's developed. We often talk about stepping outside your comfort zone and you mentioned feeling intimidated, that sense of vulnerability, which can be seen as a negative, but I see it as a positive because it means that when you step outside your comfort zone, you challenge yourself and you challenge current thoughts and beliefs. So being vulnerable, being intimidated is perhaps a positive thing for change. I would say so. I would say so. And I'm lucky enough in my everyday practice that most of what I do is supervising psychology interns in their clinical practice. And it's, it's quite an intimidating area because I work in a psychiatric hospital. And every day I see people experience on a face-to-face, -face, on, on an immediate level, disorienting dilemmas, my, my students. And in that space, I'm very assured of myself. I've been a clinician for many years and they will come to me with a case and say, well, I can't believe this has happened. This is really serious. And I've seen 20, 30 of those in my career. So I'm very sure of that. And they were like, 
how how can you be so calm? So I have a foot in two areas, one where I feel quite calm and relaxed and competent. And I'm watching these disorienting dilemmas unfold in my future colleagues. And, and, and I think one can become quite glib or even overly confident if you stick to that area. But in the area of my research and, and working uh, with colleagues and even writing, I feel very much as if I'm, I'm and I can now say, walking on swampy ground. So they, they do balance each other off. It really does give me humility in my clinical work to be able to be in this space, but also some room to give confidence to those I'm working with and say, well, I'm, I also am in a space of being and becoming. And whilst it's, it's exciting, it is, can be intimidating as well. Dr. Tarusha Naidu. That's it for this episode, but please join me again next time when my conversation will be with Jerome Rotgens, Assistant Professor of Medical Education Research at Lee Kong Chan School of Medicine in Singapore, and his research examining the neuroscientific correlates of clinical reasoning. Until then, goodbye.